There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and you're very welcome to this week's edition of the Group Chat Podcast from Virgin Media News. I am political correspondent Gavin Riley, joined in studio by news correspondent Zara King. Hello, how are you? And by news correspondent and the doyen of Donegal hen parties all over the land, <laughs> oi, oi. Richard Chambers. <laughs> Hello. Good. Uh, that's a reference to other podcasts, which people should definitely listen to uh, when they're finished catching up with this this week. Uh, Richard's excellent appearance on Dirigari's Last of Your Life. Do you want to tell people the hen story party very quickly? No, it'll take too long. But well, no, actually, no. Go on. It was 2016 or something like that. I was on election coverage in Donegal to, to spin a long thread into a shorter one. Um, I got into a bit of car trouble where I was waiting a long time for a rescue from the AA. Mm. Uh, not an ad because they weren't good. Um, <laughs> but like uh, rescuers are available. <laughs> They're probably still insuring my car. Maybe I shouldn't say these things. Um, but basically, I was rescued by a Donegal hen party mm. uh, who appeared like an apparition out of nowhere in the lashings of rain in Donegal and shunted my car with a bit of a heave uh, out of the pickle that it was in. Uh, and then we were afterwards reunited and uh, Feather Bows and Pink Stetsons are apparently the only year. The day they were delighted with them. Yeah, they're, they're anytime, <laughs> like I remember because we were, I was initially, there was a bit of a thing about, oh, I need to get in contact with them just so I can thank them properly. Yeah, and yeah. I think BBC Ulster brought us together eventually yeah, after a number funny. of days of campaigning we had nothing better to do man. so if you want to see Richard uh, Chambers with feather bows and a pink stetson uh, Google Images is your friend uh, on that front uh, it's been a really busy news week so we've lost to get through but actually there was one particular issue which um, struck a chord with a lot of us uh, immediately when it came out and definitely seems to have struck a chord with a lot of our listeners as well and uh, those are comments made by Leo Varadkar at the weekend where he discussed this idea that a lot of people considering emigrating might actually not end up emigrating at all. And as he said in his own words, the grass can look greener. Now, this was on... Who did you make those comments to, Gavin? He made those comments uh, on... I always try to make a point of not uh, having cross-pollination where, like, I don't try to use... He said it on Gavin's radio. To promote my show. He said it to me. I host a programme on News Talk on Sunday mornings and he said it to me. He was in with me on the weekend. And he told me on News Talk that the grass isn't always greener because I put to him that there was a new Red Sea poll which showed the two two-thirds of people aged between 18 and 25 and about a third of people aged between 25 and 35 were considering leaving the country. And he said that uh, it might be the case that if you go to a very rural area or a third or fourth tier city, um, that life might be more affordable. His words, uh, not mine. But that can be true in Ireland too, he said. Sometimes the grass looks greener. It's not the case that more Irish people are leaving Ireland than coming home. Actually, more Irish citizens are coming home. So the grass can look greener and considering emigration is not the same as actually doing it. Now, I've checked the stats and it is true that there is net inward flow of Irish people. Mm. So in the year up to April, about 29,000 Irish people came home from abroad, a little under 28,000 uh-huh. left. So there's a slight uh-huh. slight inflow of Irish okay. citizens. But the idea that a lot of people wouldn't consider leaving or this idea that the, gra- the grass may not be greener 
uh, is something that has exercised a lot of our listeners. Really. Yes, but I want to ask you because you were there when it happened, and obviously people will have seen this. And I think it's it's it would be hard to not have seen this over the last number of days since he said it. Mm. When you were listening to him and he was giving you that answer in the interview, what was your what was your feeling? Did you did you, did you re- realize that that was quite a significant thing, or that would be something which is going to be a a real touchstone of anger for people. In truth, my gut reaction was, I wish I had seen this coming so that I could have had facts and figures to hand because it's one of those things where you can't empirically prove or disprove it Mm. uh, in the spur of the moment. moment, So like, if you're able to say, right, pause the clock, here's another Bernard's Watch reference. If you pause pause the watch for a second while I go off and checked the the Spanish and Italian and British and German versions of Daft to see what's the going rate Mm. in all those places. That in truth was my, my gut reaction. I did suspect that it might raise a few eyebrows. I don't think to the effect that it has done because certainly a lot of our listeners have been very irked by that contention by the Tonshta. They sure have. Uh, group <laughs> chat listeners in all of the corners of the world uh, answered the call, mm. uh, Gavin. They, 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 they heard us looking for their stories of uh, rental wonders abroad uh, in comparison to the situations that they left back here. Uh, and they were very exercised by what Leo Radcliffe had to say, and rightly so, I suppose. If you look at the stats, it is worth saying off the top of the uh, of, of of all of this is that if you compare rents in Dublin to use the city that you know Leo Radcliffe is mostly talking mm. about with other cities in Europe, and not just specifically one city in North America, mm. um, yeah. not good comparison, I would say. Mm. Um, the grass certainly is greener in terms of what's available and what is rental protection in other countries, and that is what our listeners had to say. So a, a lot of uh, people joined the group chat this week and here's some of their own experiences of renting abroad. Yeah, I'm living um, in Bonn in Western Germany. It's about half an hour away from, from Cologne um, and I'm paying a fraction of, of what is being paid for the equivalent in Dublin, Galway, Cork. Um, so it, it's it's very difficult for me to see how I'm ever going to be able to move back to Ireland because I, I just genuinely don't think I'll ever be able to afford um, a room of this standard in Ireland, um, which is really really kind of proves how how incorrect um, Leo Varadkar's statement was. I made the move from Dublin to Berlin in 2020 and to be honest I haven't really looked back and like you'd meet Irish people here or even German friends and you kind of have a bit of a bit of a laugh looking at like what's going up on Irish uh, websites now you know the the showers and living rooms the 1000 euro sheds that people are living in the shed sits. I currently live by myself in a one-bedroom apartment in downtown Toronto and I pay approximately after conversion about 1400 euro a month in rent and then on top of that my bills are about 100 euro so that would include my heat, my electricity, phone and my internet and then within the rent itself I have access to all the amenities in my building which are a gym, a pool, There are guest suites we can rent. There is a party room we can rent out. When I looked at what's available in Dublin, it would be about 2,500 euro to live anything comparably. I know for a fact that if I was to move home tomorrow, I would definitely have to share it with someone or I would have to move back in with my parents. There's really no other option. So where I'm living, I'm just living essentially directly in the city centre in an area called Sol, which is right next to Grand Via, which is like the main street of Madrid. So I'm house sharing, I'm not living by myself, I'm not living by myself, I'm sharing with four others, I pay just 500, well 440 euro and then 50 euro on like electricity and gas as a fixed cost. So just 490 altogether. And to be honest, seeing Leo Riker's comments, it does feel like the grass is greener. Like someone like myself who's moved to Amsterdam, I'm well aware it's not a cheap city. I didn't come here to save money on rent. I know that. I came here to get... Uh, something that's safe, 
something that's cosy, comfy and nice that young people have a good chance to get somewhere good. So, I mean, okay, the grass is not greener in terms of price, but it's gone so far beyond just price. It's supply and demand, regulation. It's the whole environment around renting is so unstable in Dublin and he doesn't address that at all. It's just so interesting that they're so vexed by it, that they are so willing to come on and to talk about it so openly, Richard. I mean, like you really didn't have a lot of difficulty getting people to open up about this. No. One thing I just want to pick up on that I heard in that, the term shed sit. It wasn't yeah, what I heard it. before. I never heard it before. Uh, but I'm not at all surprised that someone has coined a term for it because, I mean, how many times have you seen ads going viral in the last six or 12 or 18 months mm-hmm. of somebody basically renting out a Wendy house for over a grand a month? So I'm not at all surprised. Mm. But like, isn't that even more so, maybe not even the cost or the location that you get, the fact that property is so hard to get in Dublin, that there are people who will rent a shed to sleep in. But even as we were listening there, you were like, the girl in Toronto was at 1400 a month for her own place as a gym. Yeah, There's a couple of good amenities and that you're yeah. not bad for a gym. Like you would so not get that in Dublin. Absolutely I not. Don't. People on staff, you'll see like um, places that are like supposedly studio apartments and like the oven touches the bed and you're like mm. 1800 a month yeah. standard. Like it's, it's outrageous. It is. And I, I, like you mentioned, you mentioned there that people were vexed about this. I think there's actually, it, it gets a bit worse than that because people and the people who sent in those clips and thanks again, everybody who did yeah, contribute there. Thank you. There. We love when people send um, Yeah, actually. voice yeah. notes are brilliant. It really adds yeah. a lot to the, to the programme. Um, but they're upset and they're angered because, first of all, they didn't want to leave. Mm-hmm. people would ideally spend their time in their home country or home well, city. Sorry, sorry, but I would say the government would often say, oh, young people love to travel. Should they want to go? And that's always, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. oh, you know, there's going to be young people who want to go out and adventure and experience the world. And you're like, well, actually, those people are telling you they couldn't afford yeah. to stay here any longer. And some people will. If even accepted that some people do just want to get out there and see the world, mm-hmm. completely understandable thing for some people to do. People who answered us said they didn't want to leave uh, and their situation meant that they couldn't afford to stay here yeah. and that they could get somewhere much more comfortable, much more agreeable and still have a good career and good standard of living and better than they would in this country. But the point is that they are angered by what Leo Varadkar said because they don't believe that they'll be able to come back mm. in, the near, in, in, in the near future yeah. because of what we're seeing. Obviously, the daft thing was out this week. Record mm. level of rent increases. Mm-hmm. The, again, mm. the people who make that report say the fact that we have such a shortage of rental properties means that the increases are going to continue. Mm. Um, you mentioned uh, that people were particularly vexed as well by the nature of one of the specific comparisons um, and a city in North America because Leo Varanker also said um, if you're going to another successful busy city or country you will see a lot of the same problems. You know, you're not going to find that rents are lower in New York or that it's easier to buy a house in Sydney. And uh, That may be true on a sort of a superficial level but again people have been contesting this idea that the grass isn't greener there either. Yes, I mean it is a hell of a, of a pull. Uh, to pick out specifically New York City yeah. as like the comparison the for Dublin. cities in the world. Like, um, yeah. Infamously expensive city. Infamously big, buzzy city. Everything is happening there. Yeah. Like, why are we... Like, the, he was making comparisons saying you won't get better in, in uh, anywhere else than you would in Dublin, that it would have to be a tier two or three or four city. Mm. What's Dublin in comparison to New York? And that's not it being insulting to, to Dublin. City, no. I'm sorry, it's not a comparison. But the fact is, some people who um, um, were in contact with us and who put out their views online said they were able to get comparable rents in Dublin as they would in New York or vice versa. But also, I want to share one really considered um, contribution on this. Uh, this is from uh, Claude May, who got in touch with us, a uh, long-time listener of the programme. Uh, here's her experience of living in New York and what she had to feel about what Leo Varadkar said. 
Okay, so uh, I'm 27 and I immigrated to New York in September. I had been living in Dublin until May and I moved home for the summer to save so I could move. Um, I'd only moved back to Dublin in October 2021, having lived there pre-pandemic. But after eight months, I was struggling and was genuinely fed up of the state of things. And to be honest, they're, they're just getting worse too. Out of a group of 14 um, of my friends at home, eight of us have immigrated or will be doing so in the next three months. I remember I got laughed at a lot uh, when I said that I was immigrating to New York because the cost of living was too high in Dublin. When obviously here it's notorious for being a cost of living, a high cost of living, but my response was that at least my standard of living will be higher. Like the grass may not be greener because it's a concrete jungle, ha ha ha, but like I have a lot more going for me here despite being a woman in the United States and the various other controversial policies in place over here. I live in Queens, so it's 20 kilometres from where I'm working at the moment, but like my commute is consistently between 40 and 50 minutes on public transport at any hour of the day or night. Um, compared to, I was paying 800 for a small box room in Dublin 8. Wages are higher as well here, so like the, the 400 euro difference in rent or the 300 euro difference in rent and bills, you can see it straight away. My Most of my family are in healthcare and like they're nearing retirement age and I would have been very friendly with the medicine and nursing classes that graduated in 2018, 2019 out of UCC. And I only know three of them that are still in the country out of, like I knew at least a hundred of them. There's only three of them still in the country. And I don't know if anyone else has plans to stay either. The sentiment from Claude there totally echoes what we're seeing in the figures from the INMO. They had done a recent survey where they said I think it was 60 odd percent of graduates are planning to emigrate. So it really does actually tally mm. that account from her of what we're actually seeing in this. And class. that may be perhaps a sl- uh, in its own way slightly unrepresentative because it is only in one particular sector. But it's a sector that we've been talking about on this programme and in plenty of other places mm. that we urgently need people to stay here, that we spend loads of money giving these people really high quality training. But if we can't make it worth their while to stay in the country, then... You know, we're all going to be goose, aren't we? Now, like the government will come back, right? And they will argue, and I'm sure you'll, you'll come right as well, that, you know, housing for all is working. We're going to meet our housing targets. We're making the future better for young people but to be able to live here. Leo Recker also conceded on the programme on Sunday that he's worried that we're not going to meet next year's targets. Right. He's like, oh, you know, there is there is light, the green shoots coming through, but we're going to fail next year's targets. So that's... Is that, do you think, is that under-promise, overachieved type preemptive? Like, do you think that's a bit of that? I don't think they can afford to do that. Well, so I was at the launch of the Shangana Castle development earlier this yeah. week, I was saying that to you, and the Taoiseach was at that. Um, and so this is basically one of the biggest um, kind of uh, public housing uh, developments. They, they turned the sod on it the other day. And so it's going to be 600 um, units or 600 houses and apartments. Um, the first one will be delivered by the end of 2024. The goal is to make it affordable for households who have a combined income of around 52,000. So, mm, okay. you know, so people are earning that. So they are kind of moving towards that, but it's still a very long way off. And like 600 seems kind of big, but like when you look at the scale of the problem and the amount of like record numbers of people living in hotel rooms mm. and emergency accommodation, it's like it's such a drop in the ocean, unfortunately. And it's not to be negative about it, but it's obviously a very positive thing, but like it's just not happening fast yeah. enough mm. and that's the problem. As well as that, when you mention, as, as Claudia did in the message and what you were talking about in terms of what the INMO was saying, mm. it's worth reflecting on the fact that the, like six of the country's main teachers unions were also out this week saying that because of the mishandling, in their view, of the housing situation, that the education of the country is going to suffer Mm. because of this, because teachers don't have affordable places to live to be able to get Mm. to work 
and to educate our kids uh, in a good way. That's something which has been reflected, not just by the teachers' unions, not just by the INMO, mm. by Garda's unions as well. well Garda unions is an important point because did you see the email that we once again got to the newsroom today from a police force in Australia that was asking us unironically to promote the fact that they were now recruiting among members of Garda Shia wow. to go and work in Australia wow. because even though they have jobs here, that they would have a better standard of life where things would be more affordable for them on the other side of the planet. It's t- it's, it, it is. But like, I mean, this is why, and to, to sort of bring it back, I mean, when Leo Varadkar says this sort of stuff on your radio programme um, and, and there's some, somehow some surprise that people are angered by it, mm. what do you expect? People are in a situation where they can't afford to live in their country. They're not able yeah. to commute to the jobs that they want to work in, which are vital jobs for us Both to have. their families and their networks and their communities. Like, that's really important too. Let's not underestimate the fact that when you move away, like, you move away from that support network. And Absolutely. that's a really yeah. big factor in that. It's not just about money and housing. It's about, like, that emotional support that you need from your friends and family that you, you know, will still get via the phone, I'm sure, when you're away. But you don't get that when you leave the country. Yeah. You know? Silly thing to say. Absolutely not true. Uh, well, thank you for inviting me to promote my radio show. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks to Claude we love and his radio else. show. It's on on Saturday, uh, Sunday. It is Sunday morning, eleven, 11 to one. one. News time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you to Claude and everyone else who sent in voice notes. And uh, definitely, the next time we do a call to action, please do send them in because they do, as Richard said, add an awful lot to the program. Now, we've been saying for a few weeks on the group chat that we wanted to discuss in a little bit more depth some of the ongoing events in Iran, something which were highlighted by the protest by the Iranian national football team when they declined to sing the national anthem before their opening World Cup game against England on Monday. I'm delighted to say that we have someone in studio to talk about all of this in a little bit more depth. Ida Younesi is a software engineer who's been living in Dublin for the last two years, but who is an Iranian citizen and has been following events in her home country very closely. Uh, Ada, thank you so much for coming in to talk to us this week on the group chat. Um, let's go back to the, the very beginning because let's just assume that not everyone has been keeping up with events that in your home country. Um, in your own words, how would you explain what's been going on for the last few weeks there? Yeah, thank you so much uh, for inviting us. Uh, so it, was, it all started on uh, September 13th when uh, Mahsa Amini, Orjina Amini, a young 22 years old Kurdish Iranian girl traveled to Tehran, the capital city, and she got arrested by the morality police. Uh, just because uh, according to them, she was not wearing the hijab properly. Uh, and then um, few, uh, she went to coma and a few days later on 16th of September, uh, she was uh, announced dead. And what is believed by all most Iranian people is that the morality police brutally beaten up that girl and it caused her um, like brain damage and she died after that. Uh, but the claim from the government uh, propaganda is that she had underlying issue, medical issues mm. and she suffered a heart attack. While her father, Massa's father, uh, denied all these claims and he mentioned that there was no medical condition in the, uh, her life. Uh, she didn't have any medical problems and these are all propaganda. So after that, it all triggered a national-wide protest uh, in Iran that now we call it a revolution because it's past the time that it's it's a lot more widely um, happening in Iran, in Iran and it's uh, targeting nowadays the whole regime. People, they don't want this regime anymore. They want the regime change. 
Just to explain a little bit more about the current regime that is in Iran uh, and a term there that you mentioned, which would be news to a lot of people as well, the idea of a morality police. Mm. Can you explain exactly what is the role of morality police? In yeah, Iran? that's that might sound actually really weird if I start describing it. And I have firsthand experience when I was back home in Iran that I was trying to escape them, like just because the the coat that I was wearing was a bit shorter than the knee height. I knew that I get arrested. So I, and I saw their van. So they usually have vans in um, uh, several areas, especially in the capital city, but in a lot of other cities too. And they just look at girls and they try to assess if your hijab is proper enough or not. And it's completely. And what is the differentiation between their interpretation of proper or not? I mean, so what what are women expected to be? What's mm. the criteria that the, the constant pressure that they're under to meet all the time? So it's uh, it basically you, you need to cover all your hair and you need to cover most of your body. You're allowed to show your face, just the face and your hands up to the wrist. But um, whatever else it needs to be covered. And when they say it's not proper, it's kind of, it's up to them to decide if it's proper or not. Sometimes if you wear really colorful stuff, it might just attract their attention and they want to like arrest you and claiming that you are not wearing proper hijab. So it's kind of really on, really biased and it's up to a human being to decide if your hijab is proper. Mm. And the whole concept is, bogus because not everyone believes in wearing hijab and people they need to have the right to choose if they want to wear it at all or if they want to wear it properly or not it's their mm-hmm. choice when you say you like so you mentioned your own experience then with the morality police i mean would you see them if you were walking around say the streets of tehran mm. would you see them regularly the morality police i mean is there a level of fear then that people have of bumping into these guys. Yeah, definitely. So where I used to live back then when I was with my parents, um, probably um, Iranian people, they know Valias Square, which is one of the squares, main ones in Tehran. And they were always around that square, at least two or three vans. And I knew that. So I I tried to avoid that square as much as I can, like rerouting my route to one of the alleys to just like skip them and you yeah it's it's absolutely fear when you see them even though I'm like I don't believe that my hijab is not proper I still fear them Mm. So it's a looming, it's a constant yeah, looming presence. Exactly. And if oh, you come into, I was sorry, just saying, if you come into contact with them and, and you're arrested, who who comes to help you? I mean, is there who is there? A, it's probably is there a solicitor who comes to help women in these situations, or, or are you sort of left to fend for yourself? Yeah. Um, so usually they ask you to call um, parents or a guardian mm. to come and help you uh, to bring you proper clothing and hijab, proper hijab. And they they ask you to sign a paper that you are like promising that I'm going to wear hijab from now on uh, properly. And in some cases, they may charge you some uh, fines, some money. Um, so that's that's usually the process. And um because it's not really transparent, a lot of things mm. can happen. A lot of in case of Massa, she was unfortunately killed by them. So because the whole process is not transparent mm. and it's up to the people doing it. And they are usually not really nice people. 
Is it fair to say that whatever protest that there may have been about the morality police first and the death of Mesa, that it's now become a much broader uh, uprising against not just the morality police themselves, but the whole system behind them, about the, behind the president, behind the supreme leader? Exactly, yeah. You're absolutely right. Even if you think about the main slogan of this protest, which is woman, life, freedom, mm. it's it's not only about like women body or the right to choose or morality police. It's about life and freedom. It's It was just a trigger to surface all the inequalities that has been going on in Iran for 43 mm. years. Like the inequalities between um, different ethnicities, different religious like religions. Um, if you are like Christian or if you are Muslim, you get treated completely differently. And the main inequality or the most, wide, most widespread inequality is the inequality between men and women. Half of the population, they don't have their rights. So it was just a trigger to target the whole system, the whole regime for all the inequalities and brutalities that they caused over the 43 years. And Ida, people have seen in previous years that there have been smaller scale revolutions, there's been smaller scale protests against the Islamic Republic against the regime in Iran. What's different about this time that we have, you know, captured the world's imagination with this, that it has gone on for so long? And if anything, it's only picked up momentum. What's what's changed? What's different about this time? That's a good question. I think one main aspect of it is just uh, how widespread it is in Iran, how big. And as you mentioned, it's been going on. It's now in the third month that it's uh, going on. Um, and the other thing is that the brutality the regime is showing right now, they so far killed more than 400 people and more than 50 children. This is not acceptable anywhere. I don't know how to describe it. And I think it's both that and also people in Iran, they are completely disappointed in the whole system. Mm -hmm. Like they don't want a reform or anything. They absolutely want a complete change. What's your own family's involvement in the protest? How, how have they seen things develop over the last number of weeks and months? So I, I keep uh, calling them regularly and ask them what they see in Tehran and uh, what they hear, just want to know what's going on. Um, and they say that, yeah, the, the streets are usually busy with people protesting. The Internet connection is another thing. Mm -hmm. They try to um, censor it or um, reduce the bandwidth. I have is, is that to stop people organizing? Exactly. Organizing mm -hmm. or sharing news uh, with uh, outside or like if you see the videos more often, if you see that what how the regime is killing people, how the regime is using war like weapon on civilians, then it's not good for the regime. So they want to stop it to happen. Um, and yeah, one other example that they give me is that around 9 p.m., 10 p.m., people, they go on their windows or on the rooftop and they shout that to dictator down with the, down with Khamenei, who is the supreme leader, and these sort of um, slogans as do you worry about your family? Do you worry about them? Obviously, you left home, I think it was six years ago, you were saying, and yeah. you got to visit a little bit in the first couple of years, but now not so much. And, and you're pursuing your career now. And, and, you know, but obviously your family must be always on your mind. I mean, you love them. Do you do you worry about them sometimes? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, 
especially because I have a brother, um, 22 years old, in prison right now, in Evin prison with bogus charges. Um, I worry about him a lot. I worry about my family, their well-being, um, everything. And my friends, Every like I have so many friends and previous colleagues and family all in Iran um, in different cities. And whenever I read news like, oh, the Kurdish area is getting um, bombarded and I, I know I have friends and I, I feel shattered. I, I, I want to reach them and I want to call them and I it's sometimes possible, sometimes it's not. We mentioned the uh, protest that the soccer team had undertaken on Monday. Um, given the controls on the internet, is that something that people at home are able to be aware of? Or what sort of impact do you think it will have if people in Iran are able to see on a worldwide scale the sort of protest that there is? Yeah, um, definitely. Um, they, they they got the message from the, the football team. Um, but obviously it was not enough. Uh, there is... there. There is a feeling that the, this football team was completely before the World Cup. They were um, they met the current president of the regime, and um, so it might not be enough. But it was heartwarming for people mm. to see. There's been a couple of other high-profile people in Iran who have protested, and they've already felt the consequence. I think there's two actresses who have been arrested recently, but. This is something which I think observers internationally are seeing now is that there's more and more of a backlash and a clampdown. What's been happening there with that? Because it does seem like the efforts of the regime to suppress all of this has really stepped up in the last few days. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, they 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 suppress anyone who shows the smallest denial about regime. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so it includes... Um, the actresses, actors, um, singers, um, students, university students. Uh, for example, one rapper, one singer rapper in Kurdish area is now sentenced to death just because they found him on protest. And they they assigned this term Muharebe, which means it's an Arabic word, but it means uh, fighting against God. And the penalty for that is usually death penalty. So, um, yeah, they target many different people and it doesn't matter for them if it's just a normal citizen or it's a famous person. And you mentioned your brother there. Obviously, how long has he been in prison and, and does the family's fight continue to release him? I suppose there's obviously a lot of challenges around that as well. Yeah, um, my brother has been in prison for over two years. Um, and and you mentioned they were bogus. Yeah, it's what bogus. What exactly happened? Um, so him and his friend, they got arrested two years ago on a street and they faced lots of torture, unfair trial, and they finally got 16 years sentence over bogus charges. One of them is like acting against the regime or acting against the government. It's just uh, some like words that they assign to a lot of people mm. that they are not pro them. Um, yeah, so he's in prison now. Yeah. I have one more, more question for you. I mean, what is your hope for what happens then 
in your home country? I mean, what is your ambition? Do you want to go back to Iran at some point that it is a different country when you go back there? What is the feeling for people who are involved in this movement, which has, you know, captured the world's imagination? What is the hope? What is the outcome that you want to see happen in Iran? Yeah, I think we are all hoping for a democratic uh, government, for democracy, for a place that we can vote for whatever we believe in. And we have uh, freedom to choose what we want to wear, the basic rights, what we want to eat, what we want to think about, what we want to watch. Um, and definitely, if we get to democracy, I'm sure myself and a lot of other Iranians who live in abro- who live abroad, they want to go back and be part of that that change and help mm. democracy. Well, it's definitely something the world will be watching. Thank you for coming in today. Thank, thank you for telling you us your so story. Much. And best of wishes you, to your family, everyone at home. Ida, thanks so much for joining thank us. Thank you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. That was Ida Unacy speaking to us about uh, matters ongoing in Iran. Um, fascinating to be able to hear from someone mm. firsthand as to um, just exactly what's going on and the family stakes for her as well. I just um, really appreciate her coming in though and actually giving us a chance to hear that firsthand as well because I think like, you know, it's easy to get caught up in sort of be confused by some of the coverage I think to actually hear her sit down and really break down mm. even when you asked her Richard about that looming presence of the morality police actually I thought that was really something that yeah, perhaps idea. we don't consider you know Absolutely and the idea that they're they're parked in like the middle of a main square like mm. keeping an eye on how long people And when you leave the house that you're thinking like how am I dressing to yeah. dodge and avoid you know and like it's just that looming presence Really maybe. really brings it home I think it does, really, doesn't yeah, it? it really You really does. have a human understanding of what it's like and yeah. I think that you know you can read any coverage of it, any sort of long read article about what's happening in Iran. But to hear what it's like to have that fear hanging over you, to be afraid for how your brother is getting on for prison, to be afraid for your friends and and family back home in Tehran as well and to what's actually going to happen to them over the next while as the clampdown continues. Mm. Just fascinating. Thanks so much to Ida for coming in. Absolutely. She asked us to mention as well that they have weekly protests um, every Saturday at one o'clock at the Spire if people want to gather and express their solidarity for people in Iran in the middle of the the uprising that they're going through, uh, the revolution as they put it. Um, We mentioned Iran particularly in the context of what's going on in the World Cup because it's been a very interesting week at the World Cup in terms of protests that people had planned to do, protests that they ended up not doing, uh, alternative guerrilla protests that they ended up doing in the case of the German team who posed today for their uh, group picture before their game against Iran um, with their hands over their mouths because they claim to have been silenced by FIFA. Um, But a lot of this going back to the proposal by seven European countries, including England, Wales, Germany, the Netherlands, um, to wear a one love armband, uh, which is a by its own contention, a fairly anodyne way of expressing some support for the LGBTQ community and then deciding not to do that because they were threatened with getting a yellow card Mm. if they wore an armband other than the one provided for them by FIFA. 
um, hasn't gone down very well in a lot of parts of uh, Europe, Richard. No, and again, it just brings into question um, the very idea of bringing a World Cup to Qatar in the first place, um, where, you know, the message has been from Gianni Infantino, who we talked about mm-hmm. last time around, and from the Qatari authorities, that everyone yeah. is mm-hmm. going to be welcome in Qatar. Well, it's welcome if you do exactly what we say is appropriate. Um, people might have also seen, um, to step aside from, as you say, a fairly anodyne, fairly fairly meek gesture, mm-hmm. wearing the one love armband in the first place, um, and how that went down. But people being, you know, Grant Wall, who's an American football journalist, being told he couldn't wear a rainbow T-shirt into cover America versus Wales, uh, a former Welsh, inter- Welsh international footballer being told she couldn't wear a rainbow coloured bucket hat mm. going in as well. This is consistently a problem which has, you know, FIFA said just wouldn't happen mm. um, throughout all of this. And that any it pro- seems like, I mean, again, I'm very much an outsider now, we're clear on this, but it seems from my outside perspective that FIFA has no control over the situation. It's like as if they waited until the last minute What's with the beer has been banned in stadiums? Yeah. Is that right? They literally waited the last minute till FIFA couldn't be like, actually, no, we're not going to have it here. To, Effectively, to yeah. Like the, the beer has almost become something of a canary in the coal mine because mm. FIFA are, have a huge sponsorship deal by Budweiser, who seemingly are now pursuing some damages for the loss of revenue I'm that sure they're they now are. pursuing by not being able to sell the beer uh, inside the stadia, at least to those other than corporate tickets, because you're still allowed to have beer if you've got a corporate ticket, because right. apparently it's not that offensive to the culture if you're paying for it. Um, but the. It, it like aside from Gianni Infantino's just preposterous statement at the start of the weekend that like oh today I feel Qatari today I feel gay today and and suggesting that he knows what it's like to be marginalised because he used to get teased for having red hair uh, like such a a wild thing that I don't even know whether it needs a kind of a deconstruction mm. but it sort of seems like FIFA's really thrown in the tail because when the World Cup was awarded to Qatar part of the justification for it was that football could be this this agent for change that it would almost be this way of trying to spread Western tolerance and liberal values to parts of the world where it's not there. And then as soon as that turned out not to be the case, then FIFA saying, please don't politicise football, despite themselves having openly invited us to do so in the first place. Yeah. Uh, but look, this is, it's the same justification that's given any time you hold a major tournament or a major sporting events mm. in a regime which isn't welcoming or that has, you know, repressive views about you know, LGBTQ rights, about women's rights, about race, about, you know, you know, freedom of speech, that you always hear this thing, well, it's about, you know, this is an opening up and that will, you know, this will introduce, you know, new ideas to this country. And it's like, no, it's not. Never happens. It's absolute bunkum. It never happens. Oh, can I ask you just about the actual sports, the actual football? How's that going? Is it is it interesting? Are you enjoying it? Are you watching it? Are you is it you said last week you weren't super excited well, about it? Like are you, are people getting I know the was it the Argentina game was quite a yeah, shock of well, the day. Which is in itself maybe a, a weird way of showing that, that football will always prevail even when it's against your instinct to watch it. Because I remember openly doubting last week whether I'd kind of get into it when a footballing storyline broke out. Mm. Argentina losing their opening game to two unfancied Saudi Arabia and mm-hmm. prospectively now a favourite for the competition going out in the very early stages. That has awakened me to it a little bit. At the time of recording, Germany are also losing to Japan, which maybe is another fuel to the fire. Dare we say it's coming home? Uh, maybe we'll discuss in future weeks whether it's coming home or not. The, 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 yeah, like, I mean, the football, I think, has been hit and miss. I, again, it's just one of those things where, like, it, it's it's very hard to avoid a World Cup when it's on. Yeah. When I think it's actually, it's interesting. There was a lot of different views on this because I think... Um, who else put Roy Keane really to sort of walk mm. into it and sort yeah. of address it head on? Mm. Um, especially because it was actually interesting. So the clip went viral. 
Roy yeah, Keane saying of him speaking to ITV football saying but it sh- just shouldn't, it shouldn't be, here. be here the way they treat gay people the way they treat migrant workers uh, just dismissing human rights it shouldn't be here in the first place um, he sort of made a point to do that it's interesting that clip has been seen by a lot a lot of people mightn't have seen Graeme Souness who was on the panel with them beforehand sort of saying well look it's not a perfect world and Roy Keane seemed to have the ideas like well I'm not sort of letting you go hand-waving this. Mm. I'm, I'm going to go back there and I'm going to have a go with this. Um, Has it been pushed back against Roy Keane, though, for, for saying all of that while being in Qatar facilitating a World Cup happening? Lots of it, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, there's really two camps on it. There's, yeah. there's the fair play Roy, he's there and he's saying it, you know... Like he's calling it out. Calling it moment. out there. Yeah, it was just kind of high risk, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Degree, like, yeah. And, um, you know, it, it's very easy to go over there and say, like a lot of other pundits did, saying, oh, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to highlight human rights and then not do anything. Um, or maybe frightened, I guess. Well, <sighs> I don't know, it's hard to know, isn't it? Like, it's it hard is, to know, it's, is it reasonable to say people are frightened or, like, I guess we don't know if you're not there. Like, it's difficult to measure. Like, is yeah, it? I mean, there's some, like, I can understand people saying that, but I would, I'd say as well that, um, like, it's very easy for Western journalists and reporters who are going to be protected all the way through it to get away with saying things which other people certainly would not. Yeah. Um, but the point is, a lot of people were actually quite critical of Roy Keane for going over in the first place. Um, saying that, well, like if if you feel so much about it, why didn't you just boycott it in the first place? But I suppose the, the counter view to that is, well, if he did boycott it and didn't go over, well, then nobody, nobody on to say it. ITV might have heard it over that course uh, of the day. Yeah, yeah. Which is a, an interesting debate which is going to go on. Um, let's return to one item that which dominated last week's podcast for, for absolutely good reason, which of course was um, the death of Vicky Phelan and the discussion that we had about how much uh, or how little of her campaign she got to fulfil during her life. Um, Zara, as it happens, only today you were attending a press conference with Gabriel Scali mm-hmm. where that was pretty much the subject in question. Yes, I've actually just come straight from that today. So this is the report. Uh, it's 39 pages. Uh, chunky report. This is, he's saying, his final report. This is basically Gabriel Scali looking at, he'd done 50 recommendations initially back in September of 2018 when that first report came out. It was to look at how are the 50 recommendations coming along. Um, he said, look, there was huge progress made. He you know, gave credit to those who had implemented that progress, but he said that there was still a need for duty of candour. So obviously that um, policy of mandatory open disclosure, that that's still not there. And, you know, he said it's really disappointing, actually, after four years to still be in a situation where that doesn't exist. He also spoke crucially about the culture around that and the use of language. Mm. So um, when, you know, there's a conversation about telling a patient where something has gone wrong, that the word should is still being used as opposed to would or must. I thought that was really interesting that he was picking up on the use of language around all of that. So... Lorraine Walsh, who's a really obviously close personal friend of Vicky Phelan's and one of the uh, main cervical check campaigners herself, I was talking to her after the report today to get her take on it. And here's what she had to say. We sat around the table this morning to review the report. And um, every time we reviewed a report before Vicky was at the table and, you know, she, she had a huge input and um, we really missed her today. Um, and yes, she, she would be grateful for the changes um, but equally, I suppose, concerned about the things that are still outstanding. And in relation to the culture, I go back to culture again, changing people's mindset. And then when they change, you will find that the people that are using the system will then gain trust in it. But that won't happen until they acknowledge that. And that's what Vicky wanted. Vicky always told the truth. Um, and people just felt that they knew her because she was always a, an open and honest person and they trusted her. So maybe uh, the health service needs to take a leaf out of Vicky's book and start going down that route. 
Mm. So Vicky always told the truth is the resounding remark there mm. from uh, Lorraine Walsh and maybe the health service needs to take a leaf out of Vicky's book, which are some very strong words uh, following the publication of this report. Like A couple of other things that came up was just um, Gabriel Scali was saying today, like there is actually an absence of a complaints mechanism for people in terms of um, coming forward and there's still an over-reliance on the judicial system. And we talked about this last week. Gabriel Scali is really clear in saying like dragging women through the high court and having them have to speak about really intimate details of their lives is just yeah. absolutely not an acceptable way to deal with this. Um, he also has welcomed the plans to bring back cytology to Ireland. So this is something that came up in, in the door last week. We've known about this for a little while. There's a new lab that's been built at the site at the Coombe. Um, the plan would be long term to bring all your smear tests back to Ireland. That's definitely in the works. Um, it's been difficult in terms of um, the lab isn't up and running. I think they're having difficulty in terms of getting staff uh, to work because cytology left Ireland. Um, so the smears were all sent abroad. Yeah. So trying to attract talent and like, you know, we've talked about the health service in Ireland yes, and trying to attract yes. talent. So look, it kind of speaks for itself in a lot of ways. There's big challenges around that. Um, but he said, look, that obviously needs to, needs to be done. He said that all the screening was now being done at one accredited lab in New Jersey in the United States at the moment. So look, he said there has been good progress. Um, you know, he, he's, you know, positive about that. But definitely there's a lot of issues, very important issues that remain outstanding. Now, it's the middle of the last week of November, which means it's probably safe to start talking Christmas films, which then leads to a very open-ended question, which, and I hope this lands, because it might not otherwise. Um, anything festive that strikes you about the number eight? Well, it is a lot of legs, David. It is a lot of legs, David. <laughs> it is. Nailed it. Ten points for Zara King. Uh, eight is a lot of legs, David, because it has been, it's 20 lost, years. Richard. It's 20 years, but we've already lost Richard. Richard can just sit out the Love Actually chat. I suggested we do this. So. Okay, uh, uh, now you want to boycott it. No, I mean... Uh, this, this is your World Cup. Um, it's been 20 years since Love Actually, which is... It. That's frightening, isn't it? It's frightening. I love this movie. I know people will say it's problematic in parts, but let's just focus on the Christmas spirit. I love it. Mm. Uh, my favourite part of that movie is the Heathrow uh, reunions, you know, at the end of the movie, and yes. they're all coming through Christmas. Nice bit. Because every year Christmas, I love doing the Home for Christmas story. Actually, I've just oh, found yes. out this week that Editor Joe has me working till the 23rd of December, Joe. <laughs> Thanks, Editor Joe. So actually, I'm going to spend those two days at Dublin Airport, Joe, just so you know now. And I'm going to film people coming home for Christmas and I'm buzzing about that. Uh, the reason why Love Actually is, is also newsworthy this week is because the stars of the movie, the surviving ones at least, have recorded a 20-year reunion special for wow. ABC television uh, in America. Um, no 20 management, by the way, if they're listening or can't hear this, or if we have <laughs> any sway at all, please secure the Irish broadcasting rights of that because I desperately want to see it. Richard is Do you desperately want to I see it? desperately want to see what it. Do, what could you that possibly learn? Because I hate Uncle Jamie and I want to see whether Uncle Jamie <laughs> manages to rehabilitate in any way. But would you not want to see it? But do you not want to go back and revisit classics and then see how they, why they all think of things and whether they, it still has the same joy for them 20 years on? as it does for those of us who loved it the first time we saw it and still watch it and don't want to, I, don't want, I don't want to hear or see Richard Curtis do anything ever again oh, <laughs> oh. oh no just don't oh, but anyway God. I can see I remember we watched it multiple times Ara, when we were when we were sharing multiple a house multiple times uh, festive favour for many people yep um it's my putting up the tree movie. Like, I love it. I can't believe you've just dropped an anti-Richard Curtis bomb. I like, that's the end this of the group. It's a very spicy We're not going to make it to season three. It's not very spicy. <laughs> believe me, there's not a, that's not a spicy take. Um, would you go out of your way to watch oh, it? Oh, like special? 100% I will watch it. Yeah, like I'll probably, I will seek it out. I will definitely watch that. Yeah, don't 100%. I will definitely. I mean, Joni Mitchell, both sides this. now. Oh, please don't get into the Joni Mitchell, both sides. Gav, I cannot believe that you're going in on Joni Mitchell and both sides now. It's I'm not going in on Joni Mitchell. It just doesn't do anything for me. And I think that it's a little bit lazy to think that there's some gravitas uh, associated with her Isn't recording it? the song. What did Alan Rickman say about it? To further your musical education or something. Yeah, like that. that was good. Um, 
<laughs> okay, before, I, before I bought... <laughs> Yes, that was it, Fab Harry, uh, before he bought a necklace for someone else. Um, that is uh, coming up soon next week on ABC television, so I, I hope that we find it on our own channels because I, I do really want to see that. And Me before too. Richard takes Lies. issue with that... Uh, you're a liar. You, no. you and Kira can come around to mine and we'll watch it together. Let's do that, That's right. It. You're it's not... I'll be standing outside with my cue cards Actually, saying, I don't want to watch this. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, okay, that's that's to all. To me, you are perfect. Uh, from Richard Chambers, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, despite your your hating of Richard Curtis, Zara King, thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for listening and watching, and thank you also to Killian Ginnity, uh, who oh, has been oh, a really oh, indispensable part of the group chat up until now. This is his last episode because he's moving on to pastures new. Killian, thank you for everything, and wish you all the best. Uh, from me, from Richard, from Zara, thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you again next week. Bye. 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 being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to healthcare it pays to be extra and united healthcare makes it easy with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company they supplement your primary plan helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods so when it comes to covering your medical bills you can feel good about being a little extra visit uh1.com to find the health protector guard plan for you